Blessings, and welcome to the Ecclesia Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing insight on worship renewal throughout the entire Christian faith. I am your host, Dr. Kevin Myers, and each week I will be joined by Dr. Jim Hart and other special guests as we enter into discussion on the various topics of Christian worship and how to better worship together as the unified body of Christ. This podcast is sponsored and hosted by the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies, an institution focused solely on worship education. The mission of IWS is to form servant leaders in Christian worship renewal and education through graduate academic praxis grounded in biblical, historical, theological, cultural, and missiological reflection in community. We hope that you will join us in this mission of worship renewal so that we may all come to a more unified understanding of our triune God and lead others into his rightful worship. All right, how's it going, Jim? We're back with another episode here of Ecclesia, and this one's going to be probably one of my favorites. The topic that I think is discussed in varying ways throughout all of Christianity, and hopefully you and I can get at the heart of the matter of ecumenism in you know a half hour today, right? We can we can solve all the church problems right now, right here in a half hour. But I wanted yeah, to start. Um, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> well, we're going to be optimistic about it. We're gonna. I wanted to start though with uh, praying with John seventeen twenty to twenty three, which is something that I think you and I both uh, agree is the 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 main word about ecumenism and and really the will for for Christ church so we'll start by just reading through that and reflecting on that i ask not only on behalf of these but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one as you father are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me before the foundation of the world. All right, end of podcast. That says it all right there. I think we got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about it. That's about it. So why is that passage so important? It is part of what's often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, right? So this is the, this is the climax of, of Jesus' farewell discourse in the gospel of John. And this is the climax of the climax of this farewell discourse. So in the high priestly prayer, the climax is this particular passage, John 17, 20 to 23. The the, the implications here are are really huge. They're huge. We often refer to ecumenism as a, um, uh, what I call a low-level ecumenism, which is, can we get along? Can we get along? Can we cooperate with efforts that are related to the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. And we need to have that low-level ecumenism cooperation in terms of mission, in terms of even at at the extreme, in terms of even martyrdom, and how we go about proclaiming the gospel to the world. But this passage, I think, brings in what I would call the highest level of ecumenism, which is the 
the unity of the church, right? Right. And and so my definition of ecumenism is that the ecumenism is really this this visible reunification of the body of Christ, the church, into the true ontological unity of faith and mission, right. centered in the Paschal mystery, the life, passion, death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and parousia, or second coming, right. of, of Jesus the Christ. So this is high-level ecumenism stuff. This is what, what we participate in as the, as the ontological unified body of Christ. And the ontology of the unity of the body of Christ is based in, in two particular theological perspectives. One is the unity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, which is, of course, the Shema, right? <laughs> the, right? The Jewish tradition. God is one. There's no division. There's also no division between the, the divinity, the full humanity and the uh, divinity and full humanity of Christ, the homoousios. They are, Christ was fully divine, fully human, with no divide or distinction. And so with that unity of Christ and the unity of the triune God, the church, therefore, as the ongoing incarnation of Christ in the world, participates in that same unity. Yeah, and I think, again, uh, starting with that first idea of lower ecumenism, where uh, the whole idea of can't we all just get along? While I think that, of course, we need to focus ourselves on that higher ecumenism, as you said, you know, there's some importance to that first building block, right? There's some importance to that lower level. Matt Marr, famous contemporary Christian singer-songwriter, said it really well in an interview back in 2014. In fact, he says, quote, my personal mission is really rooted in John 17. Uh, when Jesus prays for unity. And then he says, I've really tried to be a Catholic ministering alongside my fellow brothers and sisters from different denominations. But with that being said, it's a different kind of ecumenism. It's not one where I'm trying to convince anyone of anything as much as I'm, first of all, trying to stand alongside and proclaim Jesus to the whole world with them. And I think that if we think about the foundation of where we want to go and how to come about this idea of unity, that's kind of the first step, right? In, in understanding, I'm trying to just stand alongside and proclaim Jesus to the world. I mean, take this podcast, for example. Jim, you're currently in the Anglican communion. I'm in the Roman Catholic tradition. And yet we're working together, speaking the truth of the gospel and the truth of the church to whoever listens. So it's one of those things where this is low-level ecumenism already. So now, as you were saying, we're, how do we how do we build up to that higher level? How do we get to the point where we're saying, well, your Eucharist seems different than my Eucharist and you don't believe in the same Marian teachings that I believe in and all this, mm -hmm. the list goes on and on. You wrote a wonderful essay on ecumenism and I know you talked about in there, I think you outlined six major doctrinal issues that, that just kind of as an example, but how do we get to a point where we can even begin attacking those things? Yeah, that's a, a good way of bringing this about. I, you know, I I I'm, I know Matt Marr, and we're we're friends, and we've we've had discussions on this very issue, and right. how important this ecumenical conversation needs to be. And I think, well, first of all, it's a call to prayer, right? We we need to be praying for the unity of the church. Uh, going back to John seventeen, uh, you could read John seventeen in, in the 
in the, the apophatic way by saying, if the church is not in unity, then essentially the world has the right to say, you know, I don't really, really think that Jesus was actually sent by the Father. Right. Well, that undermines our mission, doesn't it? That undermines the mission of the church. So unless we're moving toward real unity of faith and practice, we are undermining our mission to the world. And, and our mission to the world will, will always be somewhat at risk if we're not actually moving towards unity. Now, ultimately, that mission is God's mission. It's not our mission. So we just participate with him in that. But we're called, we are called, all of us, to that unity of faith and practice. So how do we do that? Well, I think it needs to come through prayer first, again, and then secondly, through ongoing dialogue over these issues. So we understand our theological positions, but not in a vacuum. I think that understanding of our theological positions has to be situated into the 2,000-year history of the great tradition, how the great tradition has come down to us. Not just, and this goes to IWS's theological posture. We have this ancient future posture, right, as a school. But that's not just ancient and then future. It is a continuum from the ancient church to the contemporary church and into the future as we as we see the the, the, the church manifesting the the parousia, the, the 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 second coming of Christ before he comes, you know. So that 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 procession of 2,000 years of theological development, I think, needs to be kept in mind also. Ola Jorholm, Norwegian theologian, has has emphasized that this unity of the church needs to be a visible unity. Right. We often talk about this unity being an invisible ontology. Well, fine, but the but that's not, that's that's aside from the, the, the theology of God being incarnate and his son, Jesus. The, the unity of the church needs to be a visible unity because we, we participate in that way in the visible unity of the triune God and the visible unity of the, of the hypostatic union in Christ. Yeah, and I love that you put it that way. And in, in, it's got to be visible, right? It's got to be tangible. It's got to be something that, because while we may know it exists, how will others know who are outside of the Christian faith, who who don't know about Jesus Christ, who don't know about the Trinity, you know, it can be inwardly visible to us, but if we're not living that as an outward sign to the world, then we're, again, as you said, undermining our own mission. One of the things Jim and I talked about right before we started here was one of the things that I know that Pope Francis is trying to do for the Catholic Church is he's doing what's called a synod on synodality, where he's basically trying to look at how can we better dialogue with our other Christian brothers and sisters in a way to bring about this greater unity. And that first step is healing from the great schism uh, between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic mm -hmm. uh, churches and looking at why did the split happen? Where are we still apart? Why, but where are we also together? And, and finding those commonalities and coming together. But I think that's one of the big important steps in, as Father Dan Mers, the pastor of where I work said, getting the both lungs of the church breathing together again. And I mm -hmm. think that's such a powerful image of one lung is fine. You can, you can live with one, but mm -hmm. can you live as well with one than having two? Mm -hmm. And understanding that when we're breathing and unified together, that's when we're finally fulfilling the message of Christ. 
as he left his church to us. So I agree with that in the idea of we have to look in the entire history of the church. You can't just look where we are now, where we want to be, but it's got to be the entire stretch of it. It's got to fit in context. Otherwise, we're just out there dangling. And that's kind of, I think, where we fall into multi-denominalization. Um, oh, my gosh. Multi-denominationalism. Yeah. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Apparently not. And, and getting through that and understanding. So, like, when I came to IWS, my thought was that's what ecumenism looks like, right? That's what it looks mm-hmm. like. Me and my cohort with people from different denominations, but we're all able to come together around the truths that we believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while there's a great beauty in that, I think one of the things that IWS is strong in is understanding not to lead with, I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic, I'm Lutheran. That's one of the things that I've, I took very seriously at my time at IWS is, you know, while we knew each other's backgrounds just by talking and getting to know each other, when we were in deep discussion about the faith and learning together, it was just about the faith. It was just about the unified Christian truth. And it didn't matter if the theologian was Catholic or Protestant or or any of that. It was all one thing. So I think that that's part of, and again, that's a small sample size because IWS is one community, but those dialogues, those moments where it's just honest, open dialogue without any fighting or anything about that, it's just literally speaking about the truth of Christ. And that's a huge step. That I think IWS is taking. Well, that's why I think we one of the one of the areas that we start with is what we agree on, particularly in the terms of the Paschal mystery, right? But mm-hmm. we we do we do have great agreement between the East and the West, and between the the Catholic and the Protestant worlds, and the predominantly in the West, and but but growing also in the East, we can agree on the Paschal mystery, and that needs to form the foundation, I think, of our ecumenical conversation. We agree on the 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 life passion, death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and parousia of, of, of Christ. So we, we, we start there, I think, in the areas that we have great agreement on, uh, and then begin to look at the, the areas where we have disagreement and how we work through those. And th- these conversations have been going on at least since the, at least since the 60s, right? 1960s, that is. And these are good conversations. This high-level ecumenical conversation is, needs, to be, needs to be done. It makes people nervous on both sides. It makes, it makes it makes conservatives nervous that we're becoming ooey gooey in terms of our of of making compromises, right? But those those that's more low level ecumenism than it is high level ecumenism. It makes liberals also a little uneasy in that the 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 it it embraces a a solid understanding of orthodoxy, or or we often call that right belief, but actually means right worship, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right practice how we live moral ethical behavior and orthopathy how we are devoted what what are our means of devotion or you could call that the the true the good and the beautiful right so that makes some progressives more more um more nervous because they think they're going to be challenged in terms of of orthodoxy orthopraxy and orthopathy and they will be challenged on those things that's the foundation of the of the church how the church expresses its faith is is it in that kind of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy? Right, and I, I think being being challenged is. I mean, throughout Paul's letters, he talks about the challenge of the Christian life, and 
how many challenges that's going to, I mean, just even in that time period, how that's going to look and what you're going to face and what you're going to go up against. And I think sometimes we don't view the challenge of the Christian life being with each other mm-hmm. and, and understanding mm-hmm. that, oh, it's not just us against those who wish to persecute or downplay the truth of Jesus Christ. We're at odds with each other. And I think a big step in that is understanding that and coming to a common ground in knowing, okay, we do disagree. And not shying away from that, but also not using it as like, you know, we're we're coming to blows over it. You know, it it, it can be something about, you know, I've mentioned to you before, Jim, I've had multiple experiences where in my undergraduate experience, I felt very much attacked and ostracized based Mm -hmm. on my denominational preference. And so what does that do? That turns you off to anything but your camp, anything but what you have. And so there's a difference between challenging and attacking. And I think sometimes we lose sight of, you know, we try to be, as you so profoundly said, too ooey gooey with, mm-hmm. with, our, with our challenging. We're, we're trying to, to tiptoe our way in with some of these hard issues instead of saying, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Now let's get to the meat of it. And, you know, I think at IWS, I've had so many great conversations with people that I would have never had a conversation with about any of this. And, you know, some of them, you know, they almost all of them ended in laughter and, and, and just joy of understanding each other. And, you know, it's always fun to still in, uh, you know, in cohort group chats of just, oh, well, that's Kevin's Catholic opinion or, oh, that's uh, Johnny's, you know, <laughs> so it's, right. it's just really, right. there's a moment where you recognize the differences. But mm-hmm. we're challenging each other to grow. And mm-hmm. you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to come to the table and challenge each other, including yourself. So within that great umbrella of unity of the church, there's also room for, for almost infinite diversity as yep. well. So we see that in the scripture in, in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. So you notice the unity in that scripture of the loud voice proclaiming the dominion of God over salvation of the entire cosmos, right, through the Lamb. But under that dominion is a great multitude of diversity. So God gathers that vast diversity of the entire world to himself, embracing and endorsing, but also transcending nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, languages, and we could even say denominational perspectives, um, some of those things that are held in that There's no labels at that point. There's no labels. Right, right. So going back to this uh, theologian I mentioned earlier from Norway, Jorholm, in his book, his book's called uh, Visible Church, Visible Unity, Ecumenical Ecclesiology, and the Great Tradition of the Church. He writes this, True and sustainable diversity is always taken up into the service of unity, in that it is directed toward building community. It must be clearly stated that unity is theologically, ecclesiologically, and ecumenically 
prior to diversity. So my, the image I have in my mind is that the unity, the ecumenical unity of the church is this massive umbrella of doctrinal, orthodox, uh, or orthopraxic, orthopathic understanding from the church that, that this umbrella covers, again, an infinite multitude of, of diverse expressions. That are, that are that are cultural expressions. So, but but again, the diversity is always under the aegis of of unity, and I think that's and and that unity, according to, again according to Jorvalm, based on scripture, is tangible and visible. If it's not, then our mission is undermined. So then, how do we embrace the one challenging one another, and two embrace that diversity in Culture, denomination, all of it. How do we come together while being challenging, yet embracing that idea of unity? Yeah, it's a good question. Going back to what I said earlier, I think it it, it requires a prayerful attitude toward it. It requires an openness and an open dialogue, but also a reference to what the church has held to be true for 2,000 years. How we go about understanding that, interpreting that, now, the church has not always gotten things right, but in the great tradition, when you look at the when you look at two thousand years of history from the thirty thousand foot view, sure. you can see a unity emerge in that in, in how the church has understood certain things. And so, I I, I recommend that we that we just we, that we really take time to pray and to talk about these things. We need to be in dialogue. Uh, that's a respectful dialogue. We need to argue humbly, but honestly. We need to repent. For our disunity, we need to make it a goal to to hear, to consider, to pray, to repent, and then pray some more together. Right. You know, Sunday morning worship time with, within the Christian faith should be the most unified hour of the week, and yet it's the right. most divided hour of the week, right? right? And within that most divided hour of the week, the most divided moment is at the Eucharist. Yeah. So it. This conversation has huge implications for those of us who study worship. Right. Worship should be a unifying act, not a, not a disunifying act. In fact, there's a, a, a few years ago, I was sitting with my daughter, who's a Catholic, with a Protestant theologian. And he asked my daughter this question. I was sitting there with my wife also. So he asked my daughter, as a Catholic, how can you justify not being able to partake of the Eucharist, the sacrament of Christian unity? with your parents. We're sitting there, right there with her. And by the way, he said to me and to my wife, said, you all can't answer this question. She has to answer this question. <laughs> and she was a fairly daughter, Catholic at that point, right? Yeah, fairly new. She's, but she is an IWS graduate also. She, she, was in the, she had graduated from the master's program. And uh, she, was, she had been a Catholic at this point for probably about four years. So my daughter answered this way. She said, the Eucharist is not meant to be simply a moment of coming together despite our differences in belief. That would call that low-level ecumenism. But a visible sign of our unity that's already possessed, as well as the strengthening of that unity. Since the reality is that we Christians are not fully united in our belief, the sacrament of unity also serves as the icon of our disunity and a reminder of the work that still needs to be done toward reconciliation. It's a really good point. Yes, it is. But we need to hold that 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 
visceral disunity in in regard to forming the foundation of our conversations with one another, that we don't want that disunity. We want to be unified in our worship of the Most High God. So that should should inspire our conversations. That should inspire us to have these, these humble dialogical times of listening to one another and to come to come to a real true unity the true invisible unity of the church is to be the primal evidence really that god truly loves the world and that just as he loves his only begotten son so we need to be in that in that kind of unity so that 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 visceral disunity we see on sunday morning should inspire us toward having these conversations toward unity absolutely and one of the things too that I, I think gets misunderstood. I've talked to you know, certain some of our college missionaries that their job is basically to go out on the college campus and work to spread the faith to to others. And there are moments where I'll I'll say you know, remember, our goal is not to get more Catholics. Yeah, is our goal to convert or is our goal to unify? And you know that. There's a difference there. There's a difference between going to the local evangelical church and trying to pull their students away to come to our church. That's a different mode of going about it than coming to the table together. Right. And I think there's a huge amount of work going on in the church. Again, this idea of undermining ourselves where we're looking to get instead of unify, convert instead of unify, where it's, yeah. we're already baptized in the same faith. Start where we start, start with what we've got because right. that's even below. So if we're, if we're going out to convert and not unify, we're already undermining low level ecumenism. So yeah. where do we even go if we're, if we're knocking that down? And so I think as we have these discussions and these dialogues, being clear in our message and our language is so critical because so many times, as we've already said, interdenominational and ecumenical have almost become together, have almost become one, one and the same. Yeah. And that's they're right. not. That's right. That's right. And we have to also realize that this is not this is not something that happens through our own efforts, right? right. Ecumenism is not our effort to achieve a unity that doesn't exist. It's our response to the gift of unity that's already been given. Right. Like it or not, the, the gift and the problems that come with the gift are already ours. Right. We just have to live into it. We have to walk into it. So we don't choose to be in unity with one another, but rather we're chosen by God to be the church in perfect unity and called to be agents of that unified church. Again, quoting Jorholm, he says, what is at stake is simply that people be able to see the church as an anticipation of God's kingdom, to see the church's unity as a powerful sign of reconciliation for the divided world, to see the life of this church as an expression of life in its fullness, and on that basis of such sight, to believe. (laughs) Yeah, that's the goal. Right. Is to win the world for the sake of Christ. Bob Weber used to always say, worship does God's story. Yes. And that's exactly right. Worship does do God's story. I added this phrase to that. God's story in worship does the world. Yeah. 
Yeah. You tell the world its true story and, and what the what that true story is. So God created humankind to be unified. Right. To be unified in their love and their passion for him. Right. Uh, so the church is meant to be the visible icon of that. And then the, the, the that's our mission also is to is to help the world to be unified. I, I, I in my understanding of Vatican II, my, my understanding of Vatican II, John the Twenty Third convened Vatican II because of the visceral disunity that was not just in the church but in the world. Right. The world had been ravaged at this point by two world wars and by the war in Korea. So the the conflicts that were taking place, the undermining of the of the understanding of progress. <laughs> I think about that, by the way, every time I go to Disney, I sit in the, in the carousel of progress. <laughs> carousel of progress. <laughs> I, I think of the fact that this was this this was just a complete the yeah. progress did not did not solve this disunity of, of of humanity. So I think that was one of the reasons why John the twenty third actually convened Vatican II. Absolutely. So that the church would be the icon to the world of the unity that God intends for the entirety of humanity, not just for the church, but for the entirety of humanity as as our mission to bring the world back to Christ. And I know this is simplifying it a bit, but if you think about it in this way, for those that don't believe in Christianity or even attack those who believe in Christianity and and all of what it says to the world, it's easier for them to do so when they say, you guys don't even agree on the things that you say are important. Right. It's already a, and again, I know that's putting it simply, but that's a visible sign to the world right now. Right. That's, that's a right. visible sign. You, oh, well, so you're Christian, right? Then why do you call yourself Catholic? Why right. do you call yourself Anglican or Methodist? Aren't, right. Don't you all believe the same stuff? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So this is the basis of, of why we exist, why, we're, why we have a mission from God. This, this has huge implications for the, the study of worship, how, we, how worship is to display the unity of the church and how we are to live our lives in that, in that under the aegis of the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Uh, well, Jim, I think we solved it, right? Did we solve all of them, <laughs> all the church's problems? I think... Uh, regardless, I no. think it was a good start. I think, uh, yeah. you know, again, just understanding we have a foundation that we need to set and, you know, that great hymn, how firm a foundation I, I think is, can be a great rallying cry for this entire mission of getting ourselves to root ourselves in what we believe and build from right. there. And when we come back to that beauty, that's when true unity can be, can be formed. So thank you, Jim. This was, this was great. I appreciate all your, your efforts and works on ecumenism in your own way. And hopefully when you get this essay out to the greater public, they can also read uh, a little bit more into your thoughts on that. But yeah, this is, um, the, the next episode will probably be going back into the uh, the pillars, which the next one is the Eucharist. So talking about uh, unity and and all of that, it definitely ties into this wonderful sacrament. So again, you can check us out uh, on most major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Pocket Cast, Spotify. You can find information about IWS at our website, iws.edu, the Instagram, iwsfla. Uh, By the way, that's also Facebook as well and Twitter. That's all IWSFLA. Right. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And yeah, so 
you can use those mediums to find find out information. We there's a session coming up here for IWS. So, Jim, good luck with that as that's approaching and uh, just that prep. I know that's a lot of work to you and the rest of the staff. So thank you again, everybody, for listening and for sharing and subscribing and helping us to spread this ecumenical view to the world. So may God bless you and we'll see you next time.